You are listening to Sermon Audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. You are so sweet in a world that is that is not. God, this morning we ask that you would you would just speak to us truth. You would speak to us in, in power, God. We ask that you would convict us of our sin. Jesus, we ask that you would change us. May we become people who who rest in your finished work on the cross. And may the immense love of your gospel, may that become the defining characteristic of our person. God, this morning as we look at your word, may may the thoughts of our heart, may the words of our mouths, may all these things be pleasing to you. We need you in this space, Jesus. So please, please speak to us. Amen. Morning, church. So we're doing this uh, mini-series on reconciliation, and it occurred to me I probably couldn't finish it out without reconciling to Dan Grunder publicly for embarrassing him last week. Dan, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry I gave you such a hard time about doing the welcome. It's all good, I know. I do, I, I do kind of feel the need to say that Matt objectively did a better job, but aside from that, I'm really... <laughs> I'm so sorry. Oh, man, I got such a hard time for that over the course of this week. I can't believe you're so mean to Dan. He's never going to do it again. I was like, listen, me and Dan have a special relationship, a special relationship that is built around mutual emotional abuse, and it's, it's good. <laughs> uh, so we're doing this series on reconciliation, and um, man, I, I don't know about you guys as as individual participants in the church, but, but I have been so humbled and so surprised to see how powerfully the Spirit of God has moved amongst our people in this discussion. I told you guys last week that, I just, that, that, that we gave all our churches freedom, right, to really discern through what are we, we going to do with this time after Easter, and this was something I just kept coming back to, and I couldn't, couldn't really put my finger on why, but man, I tell you what, I tell you what, I don't think I have seen the Spirit move so quickly and with such power and conviction in our church since I've been here. Even though, what's crazy about it is, it's been a really hard word. I'm, I'm not exaggerating when I say this. Literally every day since last Sunday, I've had at least one conversation, sometimes two or three with a church member, about this hard call of Jesus to love your enemies and to actually reconcile to those who have wronged you. I have been so humbled, and I'm so excited about this conversation that we're finishing up today, which, on a side note, if you weren't here last week, you should go back and listen to it. Not to toot my, horn, my own horn on that, because that's not, that, not what I'm attempting to do, but this is a two-part conversation, and so we're kind of jumping into the resolution today. So let me give us a little bit of, of uh, kind of just 
Well, let, me, let me back us up a little bit and kind of set the stage, and then we'll, we'll jump straight into what we have today. So last week, we talked about this, this, this idea that Jesus has these couple specific teachings that are really, really difficult, and we, for the most part, ignore them, Right? Jesus says things like, love your enemies, and in the same conversation says things like, forgive them or God won't forgive you. The measure you used will be measured against you. Like these are, these are difficult words from Jesus that seem to indicate on some level that we cannot fully experience the loving, forgiving reconciliation of our, of our Father if we refuse to engage the world around us that way. And that is distasteful to our Protestant sensibilities, right? There's something in us that's like channeling our inner Martin Luther that goes, no, 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 that's not how that works. Salvation, there's grace, there's faith. It's not by works so that no one can boast. You seem to be indicating that Jesus might be calling us to a specific work that could exclude us from that. And, and I'm, I'm be real with you guys. I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. I am just as Reformed Protestant as the rest of you, but these are hard words that come directly from the mouth of our Savior that we need to actually sit with. We need to, if we're going to have a respect for the revealed Word of God, we need to actually reflect on what our Savior taught us. We need to think about that. So that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to say, man, what does it mean to fully engage these these hard words of Jesus, this call to love your enemy, one of the most distinctly unique Christian teachings. I don't know if you guys think about that because we, we're steeped in Western culture that's been so influenced by Christianity. But if you, if you explore the world religions and the, the weighty philosophies that have stood the test of time in human history, the love of enemy is almost exclusively a uniquely Christian ideal. And it's one that we don't spend a lot of time talking about. Because it sounds really beautiful, right? God calls us to love our enemies. To, if, if someone, if our enemy is thirsty, we give him a drink. If he's hungry, we feed him a meal. We pray for the people who persecute us. That sounds beautiful. Until someone actually hurts you, right? And then all of a sudden that stops being beautiful and it starts being like, well, I mean... I mean, Jesus did really. Let's, let's be realistic here, right? So what do we, what do, we do with that? When we started last week, we, we spent our time in Judges, if you recall. We talked about the Judge Samson, and we talked about this idea of the heart of vengeance, right? That, that something inherent in the broken, sinful human heart is inherently vengeful. That, that when we are wronged, when we experience injustice of some sort, whether it's an act of sin that's been done against us or it's a broken relationship, whatever it is, when we experience injustice, something in us looks around and says, did anyone else see that? Because that's not how that was supposed to go down. And then we feel the need to balance out the scales, right? We feel the need to actually tip the weight so that it balances out so that we can, we can actually feel justified, right? The problem is we don't actually justify ourselves because we're sinful. 
It doesn't turn into an actual, an actual expression of justice. It turns into a vengeful back and forth, a, a tit for tat, right? Like this is what we saw in the story of Samson is that vengeance always escalates. It always, it becomes like this vicious, disgusting game of Pong. Who remembers Pong? Oh yeah. I have a Pong machine in my basement. How cool is that? Like, I'm not saying that because like, I just, who does? Where do you get a Pong machine? I don't even know where I got that. Anyway, sorry. It turns into this vicious game of Pong, back and forth, back and forth, escalating faster, worse, more dangerous, more hateful, more destructive. And the reality is, vengeance only ends one of two ways. Death and destruction, or someone just stopping the game. The only way for vengeance to end is for there to be death and destruction, or for someone to walk away. The problem with walking away is that the minute you walk away, you're still not justified. You're not justified. To walk away means to let the other person get away with it. Right? It means the balance, the scales weren't balanced. It means that injustice against you is still hanging. But that's the only way. There's no other way to do it. That, that led us into Romans 12, And we talked about this hard gospel call of loving the enemy, right? Where when we saw Samson, what we saw was self-centeredness. What we saw was justification. What we saw was this back and forth, this self-centered vengeance that ultimately resulted in gruesome death for everyone involved, right? We talked about how Samson's legacy was that he killed a bunch of people and he died, that was, that was the results of his heart of vengeance, right? But we see in Romans 12, Paul's teaching where he says, no, 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 no. You pray for those who persecute you. When your enemy is thirsty, you give him something to drink. When he's hungry, you feed him. As much as it is possible, live peaceably with everyone. As much as it is possible with everything that you can contribute to the situation. Live at peace. And he gives this image where he says, right, do not take vengeance because vengeance belongs to God. God is the avenger. God is the justifier. God is the judge. You don't have to stand in his place. You just get to love. And the reason for that, beloved, because this is, this is the premise that we're going to start from, the reason for that, the reason that we set aside vengeance and we set aside justice and we take on the task of loving is because the reality is that vengeance leads to death. The reality is that God is truly just. And there is not a single sin in all of human existence that will not be accounted for. There is coming a day when God will pour out His wrath upon sin. And that is a terrible, terrible wrath. The Scripture says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a wrathful God. When, when people wrong us and do injustice to us, they are lining themselves up with the wrath of God. And that is a terrible thing. So we love in the hopes that kindness might lead to repentance. Because when it comes down to it, 
And I'm a hundred percent, I'm like, I want to, like, I want to zone in on this idea. When it comes right down to it, there is not a single person in human existence, no matter how evil or no matter how deeply they've wronged you, that you actually want them to experience the wrath of God. If you do, then you do not understand the wrath of God. I'm going to tell you that. If you can look at a person and with a clear conscience be like, yeah, they'll get theirs, go to hell. You do not understand the wrath of God. It is much more terrible than you realize. Much, much more terrible. So we love. We love in the hopes that kindness will lead to repentance. That is the gospel call of our Jesus. Because that's what he did for us. He loved us. The the core of the gospel is conflict resolution. Sin puts us as enemies of God. We are the ones who carried out injustice against him. And Jesus steps in with his kindness and his love. And he makes a way for us to be reconciled. This is the story of the gospel. Reconciliation between enemies. So because Jesus did this and we've experienced such a great love, we seek to align ourselves with that. We seek to be people who actually respond to injustice with love. Man, if we accept that premise, it leaves us with this gaping wide question, how the heck do you do that? Right? If someone has actually deeply wronged you, and beloved, I'm, I do not want to be dismissive of the hurts and wrongs and injustice and evil you guys have experienced, because just some of you have shared that with me and my wife, and, and the reality is I get it. You guys have walked through some hell, and you've experienced some evil at the hands of people. So how can any act of love towards your enemy be anything beyond just lip service? How can you actually turn your heart to care for the eternal destiny of someone who has so deeply wounded you? How can that be real? How can that be anything besides empty religiosity? That's an important question. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So turn your Bibles to Matthew 18. If you need a text, there are Bibles at the end of our rows. Please just give an awkward look to someone sitting on the end. They will pass you one. We, we really care about people having access to God's Word. So if you don't have a Bible today, and, and I'm saying if you don't have a physical Bible, I'm going to be an old grouchy man for a second. I get it. You have Bible apps. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one of those and take it home. There's something so important about having access to God's Word. We're in Matthew 18 today, and we're going to look at a parable that's, that's relatively famous, and it's actually one of the spots where Jesus gives this incredibly hard teaching, uh, and I think it's going to be good for us. We're going to dig through some of the details of this and see just how it affects our conversation. It's important to know in context, right, this is, this is one of Jesus' discourses in Matthew. Matthew is divided up between a narrative and discourse. So if you walk through Matthew, Jesus will go and do a bunch of miracles and play out some of the famous stories. Then he'll pause and he'll preach 
to a group of people and kind of collect the others teaching. Then it'll move from teaching to story and teaching to story and teaching to story. And so we're in one of the discourses of Matthew, one of the final discourses that's called the communal discourse. In this teaching, Jesus is really outlining what does it mean to be the church. In fact, this is the only section in all of the Gospels where Jesus actually uses the word church. This is the only time where Jesus himself gives specific teaching on how to be the church. Most of the church teaching we get comes from the apostles and comes out of the epistles. But in this space, in this discourse in Matthew, Jesus outlines some basic principles of what it means to be a faith family, which means I think that we should give it weight. He's just given, we, 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 most of us, if, if you've been in church life a little bit, you think of Matthew 18 and you immediately think of conflict resolution. Because this is where Jesus gives the famous passage of how do you handle conflict, right? You, it's the whole thing of you go to the person in private and if they refuse to engage the conflict, then you gather one or two witnesses. You keep the conflict as small as it can be, right? If, if there's one or two people that witness that, you invite them in. If they still refuse to acknowledge the sin, then you bring it to your elders and it might actually have to escalate to full church discipline where the whole church body is invited into that. And if the person still refuses repentance, they're actually excommunicated, right? You treat them as a non-believer. It's where Jesus outlines what biblical church discipline looks like. Famous, famous passage. We're going to pick up directly after that. So we're going to start in verse 21 of chapter 18 of the Gospel of Matthew, and it says this. Then Peter came up to him, him being Jesus, and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle one, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. But out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused. And he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And this is the word of the Lord. Dang. (laughs) Dang. I want to walk through this story. This is a parable Jesus delivers, and I want to pull a couple things out here that I think Jesus is pointing out to us, but I also want to caution you guys to remember the genre that a parable is. I don't want, I, I want to, I want us to walk this fine balance today where I don't want us to neuter this text, right? We need to let this be sharp 
and kind of painful, and we need to feel that. But I also don't want us to, to drive the car into the ditch on the other side of the road and, and over-interpret this parable to the point that it becomes destructive. Because a parable is a parable. It's a story that proves a point. And if you overanalyze a parable, you can actually completely miss the point. So let's walk through this. Let's point out a couple things that Jesus makes really obvious in the story, uh, to the original hearers at least. And we'll, we'll let that kind of sit with us it was as sharply as it needs to, and then we'll, we'll be able to, I think, set aside some of the stuff that might be not necessary to the point and maybe destructive to our engaging the text. So it starts out, Jesus has, remember, just given this teaching on what does it look like to handle conflict within the church. And afterwards, Peter comes up to him and asks this question, Jesus, how, long, how often, how many times should I forgive my brother for the same sin? Now, this was actually a common question. This is not something we have time to go into, but there was this system in place in rabbinic teachings where there were certain questions that kind of became common vernacular questions, and the answers that rabbis would give to these specific questions would give you insight into their particular hermeneutic, how they interpreted the text. And so when Peter asked this question, how many times should I forgive my brother for the same sin? What he's saying is, if someone wrongs me and they come to me and they they actually repent of their sin, they acknowledge it, obviously I'll forgive them. But if they don't actually repent and they continue to do the same thing, how often should I be willing to accept that same cycle before I do what you said and I cast them out and treat them as an unbeliever, right? How, how often should I endure false repentance before I escalate the conflict and push them out of my life? Seven times? Now, we kind of chuckle at that, but the reality is when saying that, Peter is actually attempting to be really, really gracious. The accepted teaching of the day was three times. That's it. That's max. If they, if they sin against you, they repent once, you forgive them. They do it again, you forgive them. They do it a third time. No, they're done. Three times, that's, that's max. So when Peter comes and gives this, right, this holy number seven times, he's, he's actually attempting to present himself in a really humble way. He's going, Jesus, I want to go above and beyond. I want to actually be gracious with people in the midst of their sin. Seven times, and Jesus essentially tells him, dude, you're asking the wrong question. By saying not seven times, but 77 times, what Jesus is saying is, you shouldn't be counting how many times your brother comes to you in repentance. Right? He, he gives this question where he basically says, dude, if you are keeping track of how often your brother sins against you in the same way, you're already doing it wrong. You're already doing it wrong. You don't need to keep track of that. And then he gives this parable. Most of us have heard this before, right? A king goes to settle accounts with his servants, with his workers. A servant's brought to him, owes him a ton of money. He goes to sell him into slavery to pay off his debt. The servant begs for mercy. The king, the Lord, gives him mercy. Then that servant goes off and he finds a fellow servant who owes him some money, strangles the guy, pay me back what you owe, has him thrown dead in prison. The king finds out, you wicked servant, I was merciful with you, you should have been merciful to them. Whole deal, right? It's, 
it's this, again, it's, it's a story we can kind of breeze through and it can kind of come across as like really simple and black and white. Like here you have this good, gracious king and you have this like evil goblin of a man who just like, just like totally disregards the kindness he's been given. It's, it's, it's kind of simple in that regard, but I want to point out to us an interesting piece of hyperbole that Jesus uses and how that, how that affects the story, right? So he, here's the deal. When Jesus or when, when the servant is brought to the Lord and his, and his debt is put before him, 10,000 talents. How many talents do you have in your savings account? Right? Like it's not a unit of measurement we use, and it's kind of hard to convert ancient agrarian like monetary systems to modern industrial monetary systems. But it's a, a, a way to get close to it is to think through this. A talent of silver, which was the most common talent used in political debts, a talent of silver represented about 6,000 denarii. A denarii represented a day's wages. Now, a day's wages in this time does not necessarily mean what it means now because they didn't work a five-day, 40-hour week. As a mostly agrarian and trade-based society, you could reasonably expect to earn two to four denarii a week. There might be two to four days where you labor somewhere and get a day's wages. And that was kind of the normative, normative way to, to engage pay, right? So that puts us in this really interesting, really, really interesting uh, conundrum in terms of the amount of money this servant owes the Lord, the, 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 the master. Like, he doesn't owe him a lot of money. He owes him such an absurd amount of money that it's, it's beyond ludicrous. It's almost indescribable. The, one of the closest ways, and again, this is fuzzy because of the way the fact that the economics work differently then, but he owed this guy somewhere around 415,000 years worth of wages. That's a lot of money, <laughs> right? Put that in modern terms. Someone earns 50,000 a year. How much money is that? It's billions, it's a lot of money. 415,000 years worth of wages that this guy owes to his master. Raises all sorts of interesting questions about how this guy keeps his books that he didn't notice. 415,000 years of missing money. But, but again, this kind of proves the point of the parable, right? Like You can't overanalyze the parable here. Jesus gives us this insane hyperbolic number. The point is you, you read that, it would be like the equivalent of telling a story today and being like, yeah, this guy owed like a million, trillion, billion dollars. <laughs> so much money, you can't even really think about it, right? And look how he responds. It's, it's crazy. The king's like, well, you obviously owe me way too much money. We're just going to sell you and your family into slavery and see what we can make back on this, which is terrible, uh, but it's also actually really kind. In that day, you could have said the family sold into slavery. You could have thrown them in a debtor's prison. If you sell them into slavery, at the very minimum, they actually get to work on their debt. If they're thrown in a debtor's prison, they are totally reliant on friends and family to pay their debt for them. They have no way of actually engaging it. So he says, I'm going to sell you into slavery because uh, that's a lot of money. And the guy falls on his knees and begs the master, please, please, please be patient with me and I will pay you everything you owe. Wait just a second. No, you won't. No, you won't. 
You won't even come close. There's, there is no way that guy and his entire family and his entire extended family and his entire extended family's extended family could all work the rest of their life for this guy and they would not come close to actually eating up this debt. This debt is immeasurable. And, and you can see this scene, right, of this king here with his books seeing this debt and he looks from his books to the guy and the guy's on his knees and he's so pathetic and he's groveling and it says he's moved with pity right and he cancels the debt and he sets the guy free cancels the debt and sets him free there's no way you're going to pay this you're free sends him out dang right like obviously this point is the analogy for for God's engagement with his people. Man, I feel like you could just stop there. But unfortunately, the story keeps going. He goes out and he finds this guy, finds someone who owes him money, a hundred denarii, and he starts choking him. Give me my money. Probably because he's super freaked out about money all of a sudden. All of a sudden, he's really aware of what money he owes to who, right? And so he goes and he freaks out on this guy, give me what you owe me. And strangely, the exact same scenario plays out. Falls on his knees. Be patient with me, I'll pay you everything you owe. No, I need my money right now. And he has him thrown into debtor's prison, which, by the way, is just spiteful. There's no way to pay off your debt in debtor's prison in, in, in this case. You are totally dependent on friends or family to pay your debt. It's essentially holding someone captive to the rest of their family. Pay his debt or he'll live the rest of his life in that prison, right? I need my money right now. No paying it off, no payment plans. Come on. So the other servants hear about this. They're upset. They haven't taken to the master. We, we know where that goes. But, but I want to I point out something here between the two debts. Because we hear this story, and oftentimes pastors will point out the hyperbole and how insane the servant's debt is to the master and how insignificant the fellow servant's debt is in comparison, right? And that's really true. We need to chew on that. But I also want to pause for a minute, and I want to reflect on the reality of the debt between these two servants. A hundred denarii, if you could expect to earn two to four denarii a week, that's actually a lot of money, right? You're talking eight, nine, ten months wages, depending on how that goes. That's multiple thousands of dollars, right? If you had someone, if you were in a bad situation, and you had someone who owed you 30 grand, right? You might actually want to collect that to try and get your own house in order, to try and set some protections up. Here's what I think is so important about this story that we can't dismiss. The debt of the servant to the servant was actually significant. It was actually enough that it, he felt it. It wasn't like, hey, you borrowed five bucks from me to buy lunch three months ago. Give it back, you jerk. No, this guy actually had a sizable debt. Right? And it's reasonable that the other servant would want the debt back, would want it paid. Because it's actually affecting him. But look what the master says. You should have shown mercy as I showed mercy. 
You should have shown the same mercy I showed. You wicked servant. And then what does he do? He throws him in a debtor's prison, right alongside his buddy that he just threw in there. That's, that's intense. And that has, beloved, I think that has immediate application for us. The reality is this. God does not downplay the weight of the injustices that have been done to you. He doesn't. They're weighty. And he understands that. God actually knows that you've been hurt and hurt deeply. And he understands that something in your heart, your heart made in the image of God that sees the preciousness of humanity, sees that injustice and wants something different. He gets that. It makes sense. It makes sense that injustice and hurt and wrong and sin would anger us. And that we would long to be made right and justified. Because those things are real and costly and painful. Someone owing you $30,000, you're going to, I mean, I know there's some rich people here, but you're going to feel that. And yet, in spite of the weight of the debt, the master calls the servant and says, you should have shown mercy as I showed mercy. That doesn't mean your debt wasn't weighty, but your debt to me was weighty. You can see the image, right? You can see the servant looking at his book, Lynn looking at the guy, and going back and forth and going, nope, I need this. I need it right now. And you put that next to the master, looking at his book and looking at the servant and looking back and going, you're free from your debt. Do you see that? You should have shown mercy as I showed mercy. Beloved, what the, what the parable teaches us is that God values intimacy and relationship over justice. We've got to talk about that for a minute. Because God is perfectly just. And no sin will go unpaid for. You don't have a debt that's 415,000 years worth of wages where you just go, you know what? It's cool. It's cool. That's going to affect something, right? I mean, I don't know if this guy is like supposed to be the king of a nation or something, but that's a lot of money. You don't just set aside a debt like that. It actually has an effect. Something has to pay the price for that. Something's going to suffer. Something's not going to get paid. Some budget's not going to... Something's going to happen. Right? But God looks at the ledger and looks at you and says, I'd rather have you. Beloved, that is the core of the gospel. And that is the core of reconciliation of gospel reconciliation. 
God models for us what Jesus did on the cross when he declared, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, was he said, the entire system of keeping ledgers is not worth it. The ledger is not worth the relationship. So Jesus paid the price on the cross so that God might close the book and set it aside and you might be forgiven your debt. Come on. That is the God we serve. And so we're going to walk away from that and clutch to our book and keep it, keep it tight and go, no, 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 no. I have to settle these accounts. That is not the way of our Jesus. So when you ask the question, how do we do that? How do we actually absorb a wrong? How do we actually put down the stupid donkey jawbone and stop this cycle of vengeance? How do we actually love our enemy? It looks like one thing and one thing only. Setting aside your ledger. It looks like having a wrong done to you and just absorbing it. Not paying it back, not writing it down, not keeping the book, but having a wrong done to you and letting it end right there. Just absorbing it. And I know that even as I say that, some of you like are cringing in your hearts, going, that's not how it's supposed to be. You're right. That's not how it's supposed to be. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that in His grace, He set aside the ledger and He absorbed the wrong. That God Himself said, I would rather eat this debt than lose you. Come on. Come on. Is your your debt that you're holding against someone, is that really more weighty? I get that it's big. I get it. But man, does it even compare? Can, Can anything that's done to you actually compare to the experience of our sweet Jesus? who who bore the full wrath of God, who paid the full price of sin, who had every bit of God's anger and justice towards sin poured out upon him? Really? Beloved, if we want to be Jesus' people, we have to be people who cast aside our ledgers have to. I want to be really clear here. Your salvation is not by works so that no one may boast. But how can you experience the grace and love of a God who set aside his ledger for your sake when you revolve your life around clutching to that ledger? How can you actually experience the freedom that Jesus desires for you, that he paid for for you, if you clutch 
to that right and wrong. You can't. You can't. You may check a box, and I, I would say you, I mean, listen, God is sovereign. You may be elect. But you can't tell me you're going to experience the abundant life Christ has called you to. You can't tell me your life will be fully given to the work of the kingdom. You can't. There's no way. There's no way. Those things are incompatible. The love and grace of our Jesus is incompatible with our demands for being righted. They won't go together. And beloved, I understand that that is a hard, hard call. But that's actually what Jesus invites us to. He invites you to take the ledger and set it aside to actually love your enemy because you realize that you too were an enemy and you were loved. And that that love actually actually led you to repentance. And that that repentance actually, actually drew you into a relationship with he who was your enemy. This is the call of our Jesus when he says, love your enemies, love them. He's, he's inviting us, as simple as it sounds, he's inviting us to actually follow him. Do you hear that? The, the call of Jesus is, follow me. Do what I do. Pick up your cross daily and follow after me. Remember the message in Mark, right? Jesus' message. God is doing something. You can be a part of it. Don't think. Don't, don't spend time. Stop what you're doing and follow me. Be a part of this. To follow Jesus. To follow Jesus at its core means to love your enemy. It means to love those who've wronged you. It means through the power of the Spirit, through, through the weight of your identity in Christ, through the weight of the finished work on the cross, it means you actually willingly choose to endure a wrong and an injustice and to be wounded by it fully. You actually choose to absorb it that the other person might receive freedom. That the other person might come to repentance through kindness. This is the call of our Jesus. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring us back to one of Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. And then I'm going to pray, and I'm going to invite us to take a few minutes to chew on this. In Matthew 5, in the end of the chapter, Jesus says this. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? 
You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That word perfect there doesn't translate easily into English. It's, it's this Greek word. You can look it up. You can Google it. You don't have to trust me on it. It doesn't translate easily. So depending on what translation you have, it puts different words there, but trying to, trying to catch the meaning of it. But what I want you to hear is this. There's this essence in what Jesus says here is this word perfect kind of comes around this idea of completeness or fullness. Filled to the brim is the image. You, therefore, must be complete. The image here on a side note, it's, it's trying to give a Greek representation of the Hebrew word shalom. You must be at peace as your heavenly Father is at peace. This is what Jesus invites us to. Through my blood, you have been made full. You have been washed clean. You have been freed from the debt of the curse. Beloved, in Christ, we are full. We have peace. We have shalom. In Christ, there is a perfection in us. Let us live this way. Let us us live into that. Let us lean into the call of our Jesus. Let us take him at his word and follow him. Let us be a people who value God's called creatures over our ledger. So I'm going to pray. We're going to play a little bit of music, and I want to invite you guys to sit with this. Some of you, if you are here last week, I don't know, this is cheesy, I don't know if any of you did it. I invited you guys to take a little card, right, and fold it in half and, and make your ledger of the person, that, the people that you actually hold on to, that you actually, you actually say, like, this person has wronged me. I want to invite you, if you have that, to actually hold it while you pray to Jesus this morning. And if you don't have a physical one, I want you, I want you to get in a headspace where you can actually envision the ledger you keep. I want you to be honest before God about your heart of vengeance and your desire to be justified and your desire to experience right against the wrongs that have been done to you. I want you to take the debt that is owed to you and I want you to hold it up to Jesus. Let him see it. Talk to him about it. Be honest with him. Confess your anger. Confess your hurt. Talk through the pain you feel from that and feel it. And beloved, let's, let's ask our Jesus. Let's ask our Jesus to actually, actually pierce us. To be with us. To empower us. To actually follow him. To actually lay down our ledger. If you need to be by yourself to pray that, if you need to find a space in this room to be with just you and Jesus, I encourage you to do that. There's going to be a couple people around the edge of the room that are ready and willing to pray with you and pray for you. If you need to sit with someone and confess, if you feel too weak to pray for yourself and just need a pastor or a brother or sister to pray over you, please come find one of us. We're going to take a few minutes to engage this and then, and then we'll end our time singing a couple songs. Jesus, 
Jesus, my heart is so vengeful. God, if I'm honest, if I'm honest, I don't actually think that you will avenge me. I think that if I'm gonna, if wrongs are gonna be righted, I have to do it. Jesus, when I think of the immensity of the debt that you absorbed on my behalf, if I'm honest, I'm grateful for that, but I still really want to clutch onto my ledger. I still really want to be justified. Jesus, I pray that you would kill this in my heart and you would kill this in our hearts. Jesus, I pray that you would free us from the bondage of keeping track and keeping a record of wrongs. Jesus, I pray that you would call us to follow you and that we would take you at your word. that we would cast aside everything that distracts us from that call, especially our ledger. God, I pray that you would strengthen us and empower us, that you would be our firm foundation, that we would have in you the foundation to actually absorb the wrongs we experience. God, to your glory that more might be invited in, God, may you save our enemy. May you have mercy on them. May you call them to repentance. May they experience the love and the freedom that you offer as we have. God, may those who have wronged us celebrate with us at the wedding feast of the Lamb. God, may more be brought to the table. May you use us to this end. Jesus, we love you. We trust you. We need you to do this work in us. So please do it. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.